Hello, hi, welcome to Rupert Radio. I'm your host, Blake Rupert, and it is my job, my duty, my honor to collect for you the tips and techniques to broaden your awareness and increase your degrees of freedom. In this particular episode, I have the good fortune of discussing this topic with my good friend, Andras Leonard. Leonard has a BA in Cognitive Systems and a Master's in Health Policy from McGill University. He is helping me in this conversation to prepare for a webinar that I'll be doing on February 27th of 2021. If you're listening to this before that date, be sure to attend. It's hosted by the Psychedelic Society, a BC-based organization that's trying to bring psychedelic therapies to mental health professionals and other medical practitioners. If you're hearing this, however, after February 27th, 2021, how's the future? Is the world benefiting from cheap and widely available solar energy? Has Bitcoin doubled on its current price of $48,000? And has Tesla gone up three or four times from its current price of $800 a share? While managing to fulfill its mission to accelerate the world's transition to renewable energies and save lives through the advent of safer driving technologies like autonomous driving. I bet you, in two or three years, each of those is going to be true. Well, back to the topic at hand. I'm so grateful for this conversation with Andrash. He's really helping me distill and get into a concise way of framing the intersection between psychedelic transformations and Buddhist philosophy or methodology. So I really hope that you get some practical tips out of this and something that maybe makes your life a little bit more connected, a little bit more alert. Without further ado, let's dive in. Yeah, maybe from this place of being grounded in our physical forms and with the warmth in our belly of so much to be grateful for, I wonder what our intention is for this interaction or this conversation. What direction do we want to use this solidness and this fuel to go? I mean, as I, as I think I've mentioned to you before, I really appreciate the way you talk about psychedelics and you talk about Buddhism. Like you bring a lot of insight. You're quite advanced at the, at, in both those topics. And so I guess my intention is to try to help you bring out as many of those juicy bits as possible. Um, so that, you know, in, in a couple of weeks when you're presenting to the meetup that, you know, everyone there equally benefits as much as I have in part from the conversations that we've had. Mm. Thank you so much. That's yeah. I'm humbled by your, <laughs> by your praise and your appreciation. And yeah, I'm really grateful for being able to have not only the conversation we're having currently, but all the ones prior for in which we got to know each other better as well as exchange these really, like you said, juicy ideas. <laughs> My intention for this conversation is to really feel into some of the imposter syndrome that I think that I'm coming up against on these notions of like self-doubt of like, oh, is, is this idea good enough? Or Yeah. And then also to feel into the real enthusiasm and the excitement and the confidence that exists kind of like simultaneously where I know through both being a teacher of it and a practitioner and an observer that I think that there really is a lot of value and I'm really excited and um, I'm really, yeah, just alive <laughs> at the possibility to share it. And I know that a lot of these ideas are really 
battle earned and were hard to get. So, um, yeah, there's a part of me that really wants to keep fighting and figure out how to get them out in useful ways. Perfect. Well, we've got our base, we've got our fuel, we've got our direction. So let's do it. We were talking about what direction this conversation might take. And yeah, you were offering the idea of coming back to already free or Bruce Tiff's ideas of the developmental self versus the fruitional self, which are simple ways of referring to classic Western psychology, Freudian psychology, which is the developmental self, the self that happens through adolescence and childhood and growing up versus the Buddhist notion of the fruitional self, this notion of one being in a constant state of always becoming. And for me, I really distill this down to the teaching or the notion that perhaps all we ever are or have is the present moment and that anything that exists in our history or in our future is really doesn't exist as we don't have access to it. All we, even if we want to say that things have happened, like say you've lost a limb from a past accident in truth, like the only thing that is real is your current relationship to not having a limb or perhaps your interpretation of the events that led to that. Part of my interest in having this conversation is to figure out, yeah, what the really salient parts of the intersection between Buddhism and psychedelics are. And so, yeah, I really appreciate you pointing out to that being one of the key uh, teachings or notions. I'm also curious, like, for the audience of the uh, psychedelic meetup that I'm going to be speaking at, I wonder how much I can go in depth on these different like niche topics as I'm not super familiar of what the audience's level of awareness or education around Buddhism will be. So I was hoping you could speak to that for a little bit. Yeah, sure. To touch on that first, I mean, as with any of these broader communities, there's just a there's a really wide array of experience. There's a couple people I'm thinking about in particular who are quite experienced or quite knowledgeable about Eastern philosophy. And there's other people who have some vague notions. So it really does run the gamut. So, I mean, I definitely think laying some foundation and then working from there is, or would probably be the most productive way to go about it. And I, I guess the reason that that idea, what you're mentioning about, um, you know, Bruce's idea and already free about the, those two different models, um, really spoke to me. I remember, I remember the original conversation we were having where I think we were talking about, uh, past traumas and, and how to overcome them. And you very insightfully pointed out that you were highlighting those different understandings. So that, you know, according to the developmental view, you know, we'll try to, go back and unpack those traumas and learn different coping strategies. But, you know, according to this more Buddhist approach that through changing our relation to our experience or, you know, just kind of accepting without judgment, what's coming up that can sometimes better result in, in, in the liberation that we're seeking. And so that struck me as quite insightful and I've noticed time and time again, um, especially in the psychedelic community where people are, you know, a lot of people have traumas that they're trying to heal from or, or they're seeking more opportunities for growth. And that's all good. That's all great. But I find people get rigid in these identities of 
you know, I'm traumatized and, you know, I'm, I'm on this journey for the rest of my life in terms of healing. And I feel that they're never able to, you know, let go and, and, and be present and enjoy the moment for what it is. Yeah. I mean, something I just want to emphasize is that I think the developmental view, the Freudian view is really time bound and it points at this relationship of like linear time as something in the past behind me when I was a child. So often I think people say when I was a child, this thing happened and therefore I'm dealing with this thing now. And I think in a lot of ways, there's a ton of evidence to suggest that is an appropriate way of looking at things. I was just listening to a Stanford neuroscience professor. I think it's Andrew Huberman. I might have the first name wrong, but, uh, he, that's him. I've been listening to him as well. Yeah. And he's talking about, um, these sort of critical periods, uh, before the age of 25 in which, uh, neurons are and neuronal pathways are pruned away based on experiences. And in some instances there's behaviors or mindsets or beliefs that can really be established with just one event. And it's important to emphasize that like we have evidence that things that happen in childhood can have lasting impacts and can radically um, affect or shape how an a, a resulting adult relates to both the internal and the external world, like what their values are, how they form attachments with others or what sort of professions or industry they think they should, they ought to, or can participate in. That's all true in some sense. And, <laughs> at the same time, I think one of the foundational teachings or realizations of Buddhism, and I want to preface this just by saying that anything that Buddhism, quote, teaches is really just an invitation to experiment and to self-reflect for yourself. So this isn't to say that it's gospel or like something handed down by a divine being that is like 100% true. But I think the invitation is with any Buddhist teaching is to be aware for yourself and look at this slightly um, maybe different angle and be like, Oh, how true is that? Or how much does it apply for me? Does my experience line up with what these other people are finding through a period, a process of self-reflection and inquiry? The distinction that you're speaking about with Buddhism is this. And I, yeah, I spoke to it briefly, but this teaching that as much as there are past events that, I think measurably will have an effect on people. All we ever have in our ability to relate to and to engage with and to affect or act upon is the present moment. And foundationally, I think really easy to crystallize states of mind or opinions or beliefs about what is real. And one of the really important tools of mindfulness, which I believe is the, at least half of the teachings of what Buddhism is, the other half being bare attention or the ability to even notice that things are going on. Mindfulness, the ability to sink into a feeling is the ability to recognize, oh, like, I think this is the case. I think that things are a certain way, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're true. And yeah, having both the ability, courage, and willingness to 
in periods of pain or discomfort or joy or ecstasy, be like, wow, this is the worst thing ever. Or wow, this is the best thing ever. To notice, oh, I'm thinking this is the best thing ever. I'm feeling this is the worst thing ever. That doesn't necessarily make it so, but this is my relationship to the thing. And if we apply this to like the backwards looking sort of uh, developmental Freudian view, it's like, oh, I think I form unhealthy attachments because of my relationship with my parents and the way that they say uh, withheld praise and love. This is something genuinely I want to share in a moment of sincerity that I'm currently dealing with. I'm looking at ways in which my parents throughout my adolescence expected great things of me and in their constant motivation techniques, they were, um, I think slow or reluctant to offer praise or acknowledgement. So if I came with a, with an A on a paper, it would be why, why didn't you get an A plus? Or if I got a, um, did amazing or in one project or uh, pursuit, they would say, Oh yeah, but in this other one, you didn't do very well at all. And I'm aware of in my day-to-day experience, so many ways in which I have internalized that sort of self, um, self doubt or like this notion that the things I do are not good enough. And I think the beautiful insight here that I'm sort of chewing on or like playing with is as much as is possible that their behaviors helped contribute to the current state that I'm in. I, I honestly don't know if they did or not, but what really matters is what is my current relationship to these sensations? And am I giving them the power to exist indefinitely as some external force that is objectively acting upon me, such as like, this is a bad situation. Thus I should feel everything that comes with it being a bad situation versus am I able to have an openness and a positive regard and a compassion and a patience and be like, Oh, I'm feeling that I really don't like this situation. Oh, wow. What's that like? Oh, it feels really insecure. Okay. What does that insecurity feel like? Hmm. I feel really small and worthless. And in doing so, I'm not trying to figure out what is necessarily true about the universe or what's causing what I'm really just like taking off layers of callous layers of rigidity and kind of opening. It feels like my heart to the truth and beauty of the present moment. And what I've found in doing so is that um, I certainly feel more flexible, (laughs) more light and more able to uh, shift and move to the fluid nature of reality. And it kind of feels like play. Reminded of, um, I think it's Bruce Lee's notion of be like water. I really like that concept of, adapting to fit every situation and not trying to hold a certain shape, but um, yeah, just moving and letting go of the, the need to control or to decide what is real or 
um, to assign values such as blame or responsibility. And instead of that, just looking at like, how, yeah, how am I showing up? How, how do I feel about this? What are my degrees of freedom? How can I play with or move around in this space that I find myself in? So how would someone apply this? Because so someone who's been pretty rigidly stuck in this identity and that, you know, some past events are still, you know, there's still a lot of knock on effects for their present or for their future. So how can they kind of, you know, decouple and, you know, play with those experiences that are coming up as opposed to, uh, you know, rigidly being impacted and being stuck in that narrative? How, how can they break free of that? Like, like, like what are the practices or how, how would one go about, you know, picking up that orientation, that stance that you're talking to, uh, talking about? Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of levels at which I could respond to this. It's interesting wearing the multiple hats of being a counselor or a therapist and then also being like a Buddhist practitioner. Um, I think on a foundational level, like the simplest tools I can offer or the simplest things I can point to um, upon which others or someone who's hearing this could develop their own sort of relationship and test everything slowly and incrementally and then have a very solid base upon which to um, build a completely new a way of being um, would be to outline the foundational core, super simple uh, principles of the kind of Buddhism that I follow. And yeah, just a, a precursor to this. Um, the kind of Buddhism I follow is not, Buddhism that everyone follows. It's not the right Buddhism. It's not the only Buddhism. I think it's really important to recognize that um, Buddhism, like any sort of practice or skill set or philosophy or teaching, is a reflection of the person who is um, delivering or communicating it. And I think a lot of time people get in the place of wanting to say that this is the right way to do it, and my way is the best way. It's the the real way, and I kind of just laugh at that. All I can hope to communicate is my understanding. And um, I hope for anyone listening to this, that you pick up some things that are useful and help evolve it into a new form through your own discovery and insights and um, developments. My kind of Buddhism is of the secular variety, uh, which means it's devoid of notions of, um, divine intervention or gods or spirits, um, in the sense like external forces. I think it is quite spiritual and speaks to the core point of being human and relating to the world and all those beautiful things, but it's not mystical. And there certainly is no notion of magic or of, um, forces that we cannot see or measure. It's also, um, important to speak to my teachers and I just want to offer this as a chain that people can follow if they're curious to learn more. Um, 
someone I learn a lot from is named Gil Fronsdale. He teaches out of the Redwood Meditation Center in California. Um, all his teachings are online for free at Audio Dharma. And to the best of my knowledge, um, he's learned from a tradition that um, I believe is called Theravada um, Buddhism or uh, Thai Forest Buddhism. It's also called Green Buddhism. And I was amazed when I first learned about the basic principles of this kind of Buddhism. Um, that actually came from a guy named Mark Epstein in his book, Thoughts Without a Thinker, which was, to, to my knowledge, the first attempt at a Westerner to write a book about Buddhism that also combined um, Western notions of psychology or therapy. And the first half of the book, especially, I find value in because Mark tries to really clearly define what Buddhism is or his version of Buddhism. And in doing so, he speaks to a religion or a thought process in which there is no God. The Buddha was not a God. The Buddha never claimed to be a God. The Buddha was just a person who spent time thinking and using uh, some processes of meditation, uh, which is basically just being still or being aware of what's going on, um, discovered some really beautiful elements of what it is to be a thinking conscious being. And the Buddha went on to teach those things. And the very basic principles at the heart of all this are the notion that desire is the source of all suffering. We could, it goes maybe beyond a bit of the scope of this conversation to get into that, but I think it's a useful thing to pin up on the wall and reflect back on and compare your experience to and just notice like how often is suffering associated with desire beneath this assertion or this claim is the instructions of how to ease suffering um, or to end suffering. And it really comes down to two things. The first is bare attention. And the second is mindfulness. Now in the Western world, unfortunately, uh, mindfulness has been really um, spread far and wide really quickly, but without perhaps the emphasis that would be useful on uh, bare attention to the point where I often talk to people. Um, I think we had this conversation at one point, Andras, uh, where the distinction or the the nuance of bare attention is obfuscated or it's invisible. Um, and people think of mindfulness as this like, all-encompassing pro process. Um, my experience has been in, in talking to people and sharing these teachings for the past five or so years that often when I point out to bear attention to folks, there can be this like aha moment of like, ah, like, okay, I, ha I haven't really been doing that as its own thing. It's sometimes I have, but it's not always clear. And so importantly, there is a time or a temporal relationship between these two bare attention as in naked attention or simple attention occurs before mindfulness and bare attention is the practice of noticing of becoming aware of detecting and so to your question about how may somebody apply the fruitional view, this notion of becoming, of 
um, always being in the process of discovery and healing and perfection and imperfection. Um, bear attention is noticing the different sensations that arise on your um, mental and physical self in your being. The analogy that I was taught is to imagine yourself bodiless, just a just a a pinprick of awareness centered in a pond, and around that awareness are lily pads and all the setting that comes with a beautiful still pond. And bare attention is the ability to notice when the wind touches the surface of that pond. It's the ability to detect, oh, a leaf just fell over to my, over there in that direction. And mindfulness is the ability to be with that sensation, to sustain and to really notice the tactile or the sensory input that comes with that event. So bear attention is, I think of it like a blip on a radar. It's like, oh, there's something over there. And then mindfulness is, what is that blip? What, um, how big is it? How intense is it? Uh, what is its quality? What is its texture? And being able to run your um, like spiritual fingers over that sensation and really feel into whatever arises there. And my understanding is what the Buddha discovered and taught in which thousands of people have practiced for <laughs> since then is really being able to combine those things in a uh, consistent practice to arrive at a more clear representation of what one is experiencing in any given moment. And so if we do this, what I've found for myself is that over time, my bare attention, my radar gets more precise. It gets, I get to detect subtler and subtler emotional um, signals. And my ability to, and desire and muscle to sustain my attention is much strengthened to the point at which I think early on or before I learned about this, I'd be quick to see something in my periphery and be like, oh yeah, I get that. And I would be like, oh yeah, it's, it's red, it's anger, whatever. And then I'd look away. And I think as in my own practice, as I practice these things, I find, oh, like I'm able to, oh, there's, there's a lot of anger there. Oh, wow. It's, it's jagged. And oh, it's really pulling me in this direction. I really feel like I want to react to the world in a certain way. And I get to learn more about what is currently going on and what I'm witnessing. And I think have a more informed perspective as to how I relate to uh, reality. And in doing so, I get a huge wealth of knowledge that improves my ability to uh, conduct myself in the way I might want to. So that's a lot of information. <laughs> Are you, are you tracking? I I think so. So 
I guess the original question, and yeah, thank you for contextualizing it and introducing bear awareness. I, I do remember it being kind of an insightful distinction between, you know, mindfulness and, and, um, you know, sorry, bear attention or bear awareness. So bear attention and mindfulness. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's definitely, um, a helpful distinction that, that, that I found and I've tried to just be more cognizant of, you know, when I'm, I'm, I'm doing my own meditation practices. Um, and, and I mean, I guess just using that as a bit of a segue, I mean, something that I've noticed with psychedelic practices or psychedelic use is that people with meditation practices are able to not panic when you know their 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 reality is being completely distorted or or um uh you know they're better able to let go and and sit with what what is coming up and so i guess do you have any thoughts as to speaking to that or as to speaking to any other of these kind of buddhist practices or buddhist frameworks that might be helpful for someone who's interested in or you know maybe frequently using psychedelics but but not not very well versed in the in the buddhist sphere yeah for sure so what i just relayed was i think the core teachings of buddhism and as far as i understand that is it that that everything that follows is the results of different experimentation or observation there is a huge body and wealth of knowledge of people who have recorded like what happens for themselves. And then they've shared it with their um, compatriots and their friends and it's been peer reviewed and they've been like, what is it like for you? And they've then distilled like things that are really consistent um, and come up with a whole body of formal teachings that is Buddhism. Um, And that I think can directly respond to what you're asking. And I just, yeah, want to say that for anyone who's genuine in an interest in learning this or figuring out uh, their own relationship or seeing if it has value for them, returning to those three original pieces um, is really the practice. And that is really at the core of everything else. In my own experience, once I started doing that consistently with intention Um, what I found was much in alignment with a lot of the formal teachings of Buddhism. One of the cool things that people speak about and that has been really helpful for me as I navigate these really intense transformational and like unpredictable states is the discovery or the suggestion that there is no such thing as good or bad sensations. In fact, the language that um, my Buddhist teachers have used is one of uh, excitements and it's neutral here. Like excitements refers to any sensation, whether that's internally derived, externally derived, whether it's something we would traditionally say is, quote, good or bad. We use this neutral term excitement specifically because it's reflective of it's just a signal 
And one of the really astonishing um, discoveries or potentials of meditation is that practitioners often experience that sensations that arrive or excitements that they notice um, may be colored a certain way or may have a certain um, emotional import. They may feel really urgent or they may feel really threatening or they may feel really like, well, I just have to like smile and like, I really have to appreciate this or, but all those things, if one is able to notice that they have happened or are happening and then able to experience them and sustain their attention or return their attention to those excitements, it turns out that a lot of the time those emotions or sensations, excitements slow down. They, after they've been heard and observed and witnessed, they subside and they follow this path that is very predictable of just like returning to whence they came. And in doing so, they don't leave a scar or a wound or I don't know what the equivalent would be for a happy thing. Um, They really are just signals devoid of meaning beyond the fact that they are meant to communicate something to you or to the being. For myself, I think of this analogy of sitting in a cockpit of a spaceship because I'm a huge nerd. And in front of me are a whole whack of different um, lights and buttons that come up during the course of my flight. And each one is super useful in that it tells me something about what's going on with my ship and with the world. And at the same time, none of those lights in and of itself means anything. They might refer something that I would say has value. So if a blinking red light comes on um, with a low battery, um, I might be like, oh, well, I want to continue to travel forward and it looks like I'm running out of energy or my ship's running out of energy. That in its of itself, Buddhism suggests or teaches, is a neutral fact. There is no value and there is no inherently quote, bad thing about running out of energy. What there is, is a relational value, something that I might ascribe or say like, oh, I really want to continue going and therefore I don't enjoy or don't like this current state of things. But if we can really feel into or practice awareness of the fact that there is no such thing as a good event or a bad excitement and all things are in fact neutral, then it becomes, I think, a lot easier and more, for myself, exciting to practice um, bare attention and mindfulness because I'm not trying to pick and choose which sensations I avoid or welcome or engage with, which I think is really a hallmark or like common stance of like the human experience is really like trying to angle towards sensations that are pleasant or enjoyable and to avoid or minimize those that we, which we don't judge as being valuable. And this returns to that. Sorry, I was just going to say that comes up all the time in the psychedelic space, right? I mean, that's why so many people are seeking out these experiences is to have these 
overwhelmingly positive experiences mm. and you know oftentimes people have challenging trips and sometimes find themselves traumatized by that mm-hmm. yeah and once again just referring to the first teaching of the buddha which is desire is the source of all suffering mm. and so if we're we find ourselves where we're clinging to an expectation or we're really reaching for a certain outcome or a certain state the buddha posits or suggests that it's not that whatever state we find ourselves in that is causing our suffering it's the difference between what we desire and what is and we are in doing so really closing the door on being open and fully engaging with the truth of the moment because we're holding or yeah like trying so urgently to get somewhere else and yeah I, I would just say that in my own life i've had many opportunities to put this into practice both with pain as well as with joy and it's a truly powerful and transcendent experience to both notice oh wow like i'm really not present with the moment i'm really like hoping for something else and then to turn my attention however begrudgingly towards what is true and to realize maybe after flinching a couple times or getting distracted that oh the current situation actually isn't as threatening or as bad as i thought i'll give one example um a family member of mine uh was in acute physical crisis and i was on a flight to um go support them and i didn't know whether or not they would be still alive when that flight landed and I remember sitting on the airplane and just noticing, oh, like this was pre-COVID. And I was like, oh, there's nobody sitting on my row on the economy seats. I get this whole row to myself. And being aware that my relationship with that event was such that it was a blessing at that moment. I was really excited that I um, didn't have to deal with uh, a more cramped space or have awkward conversation or something. And it was so interesting to like notice that and be like, wow, I'm grateful right now. I'm happy at a time in which I'm also super scared and feeling really vulnerable and aware of the impermanence of life and feeling a lot of grief and anger. And it was really a beautiful experience to like notice first off, bear attention that I was grateful. <laughs> and then the second to be like, wow just curious like what is that gratitude like and to direct my attention and feel the edges and to see how it fit against the larger backdrop of everything that was going on and internally there was this this motivation to to squash it or to be like that's not appropriate i shouldn't be feeling that right now and as i noticed that you that thought or that relationship with again bare attention i was like wow like i'm in pain and i'm so quick to want to continue or perpetuate that pain as opposed to like having appreciation or just openness to the fact that not everything has to be so bleak right now. Wow. Like I'm the, it's so amazing to look at the ways in which my own suffering is (laughs) self-inflicted or Mm. perpetuated. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. That that's a super, um, that's a really good example 
um, of I think what you're what you're referring to. Um, I I did have one thread come up in my mind as as you were laying out that that framework. Um, and so I remember when we tripped together and. I particularly appreciated, you know, how how we laid out the intentions for the day and, and 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 that kind of thing, and you know, even for this conversation, we've laid out the intentions. So I guess how would you and and then I guess just as a bit more context, there are a couple of um, maybe two meetups ago, there was that uh, psychotherapist who came on who who really stated you should have no intention going into psychedelics and you know it's naive to assume you can have any intention so i guess how do you how would you look at having intentions like is that not um is their desire not implicit in that and yeah i guess how would you work through that or think through that mm-hmm. yeah it's it's amazing to me I, almost every time that i discuss this with somebody uh this question arises um and it often takes the form of well, I want certain things and certain things I think are healthier, better for me. So mm-hmm. should I not want those healthy things? Should I not want to get more exercise or treat my loved ones with care or any of these things? And what I think is really important to stress is that um, the, the teachings of Buddhism are not prescriptive. They're not uh, instructions on how to orient towards um, what is true. There are invitations to consider different possibilities than I think are immediately obvious or that at least are culturally like spread as what is true. And so in terms of this idea of like, should we not have intentions? I f- <laughs> that gentleman was uh, wonderful and also <laughs> kind of, uh, I found his arguments to be self-defeating. Um, I would just put forward that if you believe that it's inappropriate or unadvisable to have an intention and thus you go into a uh, setting having consciously made an effort not to have an intention, you have made an intention. That is, it's circular reasoning. Um, To what degree people should hold, and it was difficult in that particular conversation to really get at how much he or how he saw that being practiced. I think a couple of people in the questions afterwards asked this too. Um, specifically, there was a gentleman named Tony who was referring to Gabor Mate's work about the importance and value um, that Gabor Mate, as well as indigenous medicine holders for, I think since time immemorial, have spoken to about like really cultivating and entering a space with a specific intention in mind and in heart. And how that really is the de facto um, sort of approach, I think, Um, at least what I've seen among uh, trained and practiced um, medicine holders. And what I recall the gentleman's um, response being was like how presumptuous it was to think that you could inform or decide this like very transformative or transcendent experience. Um, I seem to recall he got into some more like mystical elements about like spirit or the intentions of the medicine being so big that they should um, make any direction that you uh, want to hold small and inconsequential. I get this picture of like holding up a candle to a hurricane. And yeah, I mean, 
the distinction I would make is that holding a desire is certainly opening oneself up to a large array of, of outcomes. So if you want your, um, if you set an intention for your um, psychedelic journey to be for one of peace or uh, love, well, almost every time I've seen um, somebody set such a clear uh, intention or like, I want to get resolution with my parents or something like that. In the debrief, <laughs> so commonly people talk about how um, upset they were with about what actually happened or how they got the opposite. They just felt more grief and more tension with their relationship with their parent. And so what I would suggest is that one really cultivates and feels into what sort of areas or directions they um, are interested in this session or this practice or this ritual going while being mindful or aware of the fact that these are their preferences. These are their desires. It's not objectively true that that's where it's going to go. They can't necessarily make that happen, but they can just be inquisitive and take ownership of the fact that they do have preferences. And so the teaching of Buddhism and the answer to folks who say like, well, shouldn't I want to be healthier or care about loved ones or whatever is that Buddhism doesn't say what you should or shouldn't do. What it asks you to consider is how is your desires contributing to your suffering? And I think with specifically the idea of trip setting, um, you want to be very careful of if your intentions are rigid and narrow such that if something occurs outside of that particular like angle that you're looking at, you'll be resistant or close yourself off or fight it. And cause yeah, time and time again, not only in psychedelics, but I think in life, if we try to pretend that what's happening isn't, um, we really diminish or undercut our ability to respond to it in an actually like effective way. Okay. No, thank you for laying that out. I think that's helpful. And I guess one further piece of context to anyone who didn't listen to that, the, 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 the meetup with that psychotherapist is he, he was suggesting very high doses. So I think, you know, 500, a thousand micrograms of LSD. And so it is possible at that point, particularly that the intentions we might set are especially not going to be realized or, or that, that there's just, you know, so much more chaos or so much more ent entropy. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't for myself, I wouldn't put any caveats on it. I would say that it's dose independent. Um, and that this is kind of in my mind, like, uh, in my own experience, a structural element of being a conscious organism relating to reality that, um, yeah, the ability, I think, as he kind of alluded to, of to be simply oh, present and participating radically authentic in the moment. I think that is super, super valuable. And at the same time, um, part of that is to not deny or pretend otherwise that you don't have preferences or that you don't have fears or that you don't have aversions. I think that is actually a healthy practice to 
both prior and then like in the days leading up to it or weeks or months. And then also in the experience to be honest about those facts and be like, Oh wow. Like this is getting kind of spooky. I was really hoping for fluffy. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm resisting that. Oh, Oh, I'm resisting that. Cause it's not what I expected or what I anticipate. It's not what I won't want. Oh, well, how does that feel? Well, it feels tight and it feels scary. It's like, Oh, I wonder if that's contributing to how uncomfortable this feels. What if I just simply be like, Oh, it is spooky. It is true. <laughs> what does that, does that improve one's ability to navigate it? Does it lessen the stress? I would suggest that consistently it does. Whether it's a sober moment or a three grams of psilocybin or if it's a thousand micrograms of LSD. Yeah. <laughs> and how, how do you feel that psychedelics may have helped deepen your Buddhist practice? Or do you feel that there's been any, like, do you feel it's been a pretty bilateral relationship or has it been, um, you know, kind of a more emphasis one way or the other? Hmm. I think I have to refer to um, one of the best essays I've ever read, um, which is Sam Harris's first ever um, published on his uh, podcast, which um, is basically a telling of his own relationship and discovery of psychedelics in his uh, early, early adolescence and how that subsequently motivated him to devote a large portion of his life to Buddhist inquiry and self awareness practices. Um, I'm not sure for the record, if Sam identifies as a Buddhist, he's definitely studied with some of the most influential Buddhists. Um, but he's also done a lot of research into Hinduism, which, um, actually predates Buddhism and a lot of the teachings are similar. Um, but basically Sam's takeaway is that psychedelics opened up the possibility of dimensions of reality or experiencing layers of reality that he previously was ignorant to. So basically as a sober American man up until his twenties, he thought he knew a lot about life and was pretty familiar with the different ways it could arrive. And then after taking MDMA, I think it was for the first time. And then subsequently uh, different forays with psilocybin and LSD, he recognized a layer of, uh, love and compassion and creativity and openness that he had heard about through different um, cultural like tellings, either movies or stories or scripture. People talk about these exultant states or these transcendent uh, perspectives. And he realized, holy cow, they are real and they exist. And through consuming this exogenous substance, I can access them. And one of the beautiful distinctions that he makes is that often, and one of the reasons he, I think, takes them a lot less frequently today is that often in taking these substances, it is like strapping oneself to a rocket and being shot full speed into um, these outer limits of our experience. And that can be hugely valuable, especially for people who maybe were in denial that these states were exist or they had never caught glimpses of them to be shunted or pushed there so rapidly. And so fully is hugely valuable for informing them. Hey, like you could be focusing on getting here and exploring these regions. And for myself, that really resonates because 
I was somebody who grew up in a Christian setting. I attended church uh, two or three times a week in Vancouver, Canada. Um, it wasn't a super religious community as it was just one of um, support and connection and talking about the different values and morals and important ways of being human. But I definitely heard about states of ecstasy and unconditional love or connection. And I was curious. I was like, well, that kind of doesn't resonate with my experience. It doesn't um, match my day-to-day world. And I was also subsequently being educated that any sort of drug was highly immoral and super dangerous. I remember being told that if I did mushrooms, it would um, make my brain bleed. And it wasn't until I was 18 and on a trip to a music festival, Sasquatch Music Festival in Washington, rest in peace, um, where I think because I was in such a novel environment, it was my first time there. I was um, at a time just coming of age. Uh, I had a really close friend who offered to give me some mushrooms and really suggested that I try them. And up until that point, I was vehemently like very strongly against any kind of um psychedelic use and i whenever friends would talk about it i would be like that's so bad for you don't do it but something about that setting um encouraged me to try them and i'm forever grateful because in the preceding six hours i recognized a layer of or a level of just like openness to life and the beautiful it was like color got the saturation of the world got boosted a thousand percent and where the music like touched my soul and where I could actually feel my body and exist in it. Not like some broken down cheap vehicle, but I could really appreciate it for the strong earthy empowered um, earth suit that it is. And subsequently from that, I was always aware like, wow, these states are possible. Like it's not enough to just kind of be my sense was it's not enough to be small and to be bitter and cold and gray. Like I really want to move more and more steadily towards warmth and compassion and love and purpose and generosity in ways that aren't limited to like conventional um, capital consumerist life. And the, the end of, Sam's essay talks about how Buddhism or psych, um, meditation, the common meditation, by the way, be the combination of bare attention and mindfulness is really like developing a, uh, rowboat or a, um, sailboat to access the same places that the rocket ship takes you. And it's a lot slower, I think in both his and my estimation, um, but it's also a lot more reliable and it's something that you can uh, use at your own pace and with a lot more direction. When you're on the rocket ship, you don't have a ton of control. It's going really fast and you can't always take the rocket ship because there's inclement weather and you can't, it's can't fly a rocket ship every day of the week, but going out on a sailboat, like that's a much more available and, um, yeah, accessible way of navigating these amazing territories. And yeah, that's been hugely motivating to 
want to <laughs> have the endurance and the persistence and the um, long field view to practice meditation because yeah it doesn't happen quickly but knowing it's out there is like i'm really grateful for psychedelics for yeah motivating me i can i can definitely relate i mean i'm, I'm coming from a, a, a similar experience like psychedelics introduced me to the possibility of how diverse our mental states can be and, and just what we can experience or how radically altered our reality can be so um, I, I can definitely relate to that. One question that I've had come up when I've been talking about this kind of intersection between Buddhism and psychedelics is that um, at least some of the more traditional variants of Buddhism, they there's one of those tenets where um, you shouldn't be taking any any substances, you shouldn't be taking any intoxicants. It's really orthogonal to Buddhist practice. Do you have any uh, thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, I would refer to what I had said before, which is a framework that I think for us Westerners maybe isn't so familiar. Um, <laughs> just speaking broadly about different forms of Christianity. I think there really is this notion of a higher power uh, authority or a hierarchy at which you don't question, like as the regular members of the congregation, you're at least what I was taught and what I've observed throughout Christianity, Christianity and Catholicism is that the people in the Congress, they, their experience is not as important as the priest or the Cardinals or the popes. And so you're really looking to upwards for answers and it's really a top down approach. And you have this, these books that are recorded uh, seemingly or accordingly the word of God himself um, that you're supposed to follow without doubt or belief or sorry, without doubt or second guessing and use it to be the laws of your life. Um, to me, that's an, and even as a young child, that was an incredible ask. I just was amazed at the amount of authority that that was attempting to strip away from me. And what I instead uh, really appreciate about Buddhism and one of the, I can remember the first time I was reading and learning about Buddhism from Thoughts Without a Thinker, the idea that Buddhism is not so much a religion as it is a methodology for inquiry or experimentation. And at its core, the only teachings of the Buddha was the contention or the belief that desire is a source of all suffering followed by, and if you want to contribute to the cessation, the ending of suffering, then one way to do so is through meditation, AKA bear attention and mindfulness. Everything else that follows, at least in my framework for Buddhism and what I've been taught is up for debate. And it's, the notions or the ideas of the collected community as they engage with these ideas. And so there's the idea of the eightfold path, which are eight different areas of focus that a Buddhist might want to um, develop or engage with in order to consistently um, orient towards a deeper and more healthy practice. They are 
in my eyes, really useful sets of teachings from, like I said, the community. It's like a how-to guide. Um, and at the same time, that doesn't mean that they are absolute or necessary or correct. They are a compilation of uh, crowdsourced wisdom. And so for myself, I get a huge amount of value from looking at those things and seeing like, how are they different than how I'm currently acting? And then do they suggest an alternative that maybe I haven't experimented with so much that I might want to try in order to resolve some of the suffering or the tension that I'm feeling in my life? So for example, with the one about um, abstaining from drug use, this is something that not only Buddhism, but a lot of spiritual practices suggest is to be really um, reluctant to engage with substances that alter our body or our mind um, for pleasure. And that's my interpretation of the do not take like mind altering um, substances. And there's other layers of it too. But at the heart, I think it's really this invitation to continue to make peace and be open to what is without escaping it through the use of exogenous substances. And importantly, I, I think a distinction that I note is in Christianity, they would say it's immoral to use drugs or whatever. Whereas in Buddhism, it's a suggestion. It's like, maybe you'd be better off if you didn't. And so it's an invitation to experiment and to assist one's practice of um, relating to desire through awareness. I would also just say that another one of the ones that um, is part of the Buddhist like Eightfold Path of the collection of teachings um, that originally I heard it and I resisted it, but I've since in experimentation realized that it's, there is a lot. I, I used to think, Oh, like what do they know? They've, they, uh, they got this part wrong and it's through, through really like observing it over a period of many years and in different settings, I've realized, Oh, like I'd probably do well to listen to these teachings more and like default to kind of trusting them. Um, the particular one I'm thinking of is this notion of right speech, which is, being cognizant and really intentional of how we speak or direct words to another. And there's a whole bunch of nested different um, ideas in this category, such as like, is what you're saying necessary? Is it true? Is it helpful? Um, Not speaking about uh, different ailments or pains you have. um, If there is no cause, simply if you just want to draw attention to the injury, um, there's a whole bunch of different parts to it. And in my own life, like I said, over a period of time, I've more and more realized like, wow, it genuinely, I feel better and more aware and more empowered when I abide by these sets of advice. And I think it's really beautiful too, that they're sets of advice and not um, shame points or like commandments that are, if you don't do, well, you're definitely a bad person. Yeah, I don't think I ever, I didn't clue into that distinction between kind of a a guideline versus a directive. Yeah. And this is, again, going back to the early one of these that I first spoke to, which is there is no good or bad. Like, like literally, like one of the first sort of wisdom teachings of Buddhism is that there is no right or wrong or good or bad. There are things that we 
may agree are preferential, such as like not causing harm. But even that in the Buddha's teaching is not because doing harm is bad. The, the Buddha teaches or suggests through his teachings that we not we want to be honest and not commit violence or not steal, not because of some objective moral code that we can refer to with somebody who's steeping a tally and putting scores up like you're a house in Gryffindor, but because if you steal or cheat or lie, you will suffer. And it's something we can investigate and look at for ourselves of like whether or not acts of generosity of accountability about integrity, if they feel good or if they feel bad. And notice here that the Buddha is basically saying you should do the things that feel good. <laughs> and it just so happens to be that for a lot of us, those things that feel good um, coincide, I think, or overlap with a lot of healthy and productive um, attitudes, beliefs and behaviors. Yeah, it's very different than the notion of holding uh, a whip over somebody and being like, we know what's best and you better follow what we say. So one thing I really want to emphasize is in this idea that it, there are simply excitements and they are neutral, that there are no such things as good or bad events. And so for somebody who's maybe engaging with psychedelics and they are put in a position or find themselves in a position where they um, are noticing a very strong relationship to an event, say they recall an instance of abuse, whether they were the perpetrator or the recipient. I think for a lot of people, there can be a very um, salient or intense level of energy associated with that um, event. And what I'd really encourage them to do, and I've heard this distilled throughout the psychedelic tradition, but I think Buddhism really um, un, uh, defines it or like gives it meat, is realize that that event or those sensations in and of themselves are neutral. It, they're not objectively good or bad. And meet those excitements with curiosity and an openness and passion, uh, patience and compassion and allow yourself in whatever way feels safe to feel into the sensations that are arrived, uh, rising. And maybe it'll be like, Whoa, this is too intense. I, I actually feel like I can't, um, deal with this at that moment. And that can, in some instances be a really wise, um, course of action. And it's still, it's an opportunity to, in that psychedelic space, be like, oh, what is it like to not want to deal with this right now? And you can kind of abstract or go one step away from it and just begin to be aware of some of the sensations or um, signals that your being is sending you to unpack maybe some of the layers of, um, yeah, of debris or rigidity that surround this area of tightness. And when you'd be working with a client in this kind of context, how would you be supporting them through this kind of experience? Like if something is coming up for them, what kind of guidance are you able to offer them in the moment or what would that process mm. look like? Yeah. So much of it happens prior. Um, are you speaking specifically to a psychedelic session? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I would really defer to so many of the practitioners out there who have established already that the, the best practice is to really to form a relationship and to set expectations and discuss strategies prior to entering those spaces. Um, and so I try and I really try and front load uh, with folks this, these notions of there's no such thing as objective, good or bad, um, and practice awareness through both noticing and then directing your attention to while focusing on your breath and returning to your breath. Um, and I just, I would probably do some like a uh, very brief role play to um, really get them to, to practice that and implement it. So it's not, they're not trying to figure it out in the moment. And then I would also be really clear about the possibility or in some ways the inevitability of um, uncomfortable sensations arising and really emphasize that um, or like go through a process of asking. So like, what would you do and working with them uh, to determine if they're at a place where they feel comfortable to meet it with compassion, curiosity, openness, as opposed to resisting or um, trying to avoid it or panicking should those things arise. And if they weren't in that place, then I would suggest maybe it's not useful to, um, uh, to enter a session with psychedelics and that, that, that they may have want to find more solid ground before they add that accelerant into the mix. Um, in the actual sessions themselves, I find that what's really useful is to um, engage people in such a way so that they are continually being invited to uh, direct their attention back towards their current um, experience while threading that needle or walking that line where they aren't being swallowed or consumed by whatever sensations arise um, or running away from them or feeling like they're immediately threatened by those sensations. And so what I find um, really useful is uh, loosely referred to as somatic experiencing, which is essentially soma, soma, the Greek or Latin word for um, body and just inviting people to in Buddhist terms, practice mindfulness and bear attention for the sensations in their being. And those could be like, what is your body feel like? Or they could be like, what does your sensory apparatus tell you through like scent or sight or smell or touch? And just continuing to gently invite them to attend to what is immediately true in this moment. And so often I find that for all of us, myself included, in moments of heightened emotion or in distracted disembodied emotion we can be really reluctant to to take those steps and to be aware of what's going on and it's maybe counterintuitive as well as like astonishing for myself to observe that every time that i'm excited or upset or really giddy if i can notice that and then breathe and focus on breathing and then be open to whatever sensations arise i'm like oh well like my stomach is like really tight or my heart is really open. Ah, and in doing so, it's almost like the sensations intensity increases while also relaxing. And while also um, the le level of urgency, it may peak or like increase right as I direct my attention to it. 
but very rapidly it falls off and returns to a place where it feels a lot more manageable. Sometimes depending on the circumstance that could take five minutes. Um, sometimes it takes half an hour, but usually it takes like 30 seconds. And so I may be in a situation where I'm like, I really don't feel safe and I really need to get out of her, get out of here. I was in a set, setting like that actually just yesterday where a series of events was unfolding where I didn't feel safe in someone's presence. And there was a very primal drive to escape the situation. And I noticed that. And then I did a body scan, the somatic experiencing I was looking at like, Oh, what signals are, am I noticing that are coalescing to give me this impression that I need to get away? I was like, Oh, okay. My legs are like tensing and it feels like there's blood flowing to them. And I just felt into the legs a bit more and noticed that I was clenching them. And so I directed breath towards them and my legs physically shifted and they relaxed. And with that, my stress levels seemed to subside. And I was like, Oh, okay, well, I really don't want to be here, but do, is it okay if I stay, do I need to leave? And I realized, no, it's just, it's useful to know that I don't want to be here. Um, yeah, and I was able to meet that circumstance with a lot more like patience and awareness of being aware that there was a really clear signal that something was unsafe, while also like not just giving into that without really knowing why and feeling like I had to react in a certain way, which I think would have ru ruined a lovely opportunity to get to uh, meet someone and learn about a new circumstance. And can, can you speak to maybe a bit how you would approach or potentially how you might approach kind of the integration or the, 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 the post work with a client, um, mm -hmm. again, you know, threading in any of these elements of, of, of Buddhism into that kind of process as to how it might yeah. kind of differ from a more conventional approach, let's say. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing I note often that I would like to, help people understand from a Buddhist perspective is, uh, again, this idea of time and this idea of, um, like, I think it's so common for somebody to, whether it's immediately following a session or the next day or the next week to be like, wow, it was so intense. It was so X, like I felt so incredible. And what I would really like to do is be like, oh, that's wonderful. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with com communicating that or reliving that or recalling it. But what I really would like to invite them towards is what are you focusing now? What are you feeling now? What is your current relationship to this? And I f do so intentionally because I think it's really easy to externalize events such that it's something that has happened in our past is now affecting us today. Whereas, and again, that may or may not be true, but what I think there is more layers of engagement and the possibility to um, influence or participate in is what is your current relationship to the sensations you're feeling now? So, okay. What are you currently feeling about as you recall or remember this experience? How are they, affecting you in your life in this present moment? Is there a sense of longing? Is there a sense of fulfillment? What does that feel like in your body? 
And yeah, combining these ideas of mindfulness, bear attention, and just continually returning to this ever evolving moment with appreciation and gratitude and openness and curiosity. And in doing so, recognizing that in every moment, I believe, and Buddhism suggests, that we have all we need to be a perfect, fully manifested being, as well as somebody who is constantly in a state of rediscovery and rebirth and change and imperfection. And the more in my own life I can orient towards this possibility or consider it or remember to um, be present with what is as opposed to grasping for what's in the past or imagining some future that is not real. Um, I find that, yeah, it's just this idea of being like empty or these holes that feel like they're part of my very being of who I am. Uh, those holes, they don't get filled. They just disappear. And what becomes real is just whatever I'm sensing in that moment. And whatever I'm sensing is usually pretty incredible just to be a sensing being and to be relating to all the things in reality is really a gift. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you. Thank you for sharing all that. Like that is, this is why I enjoy these conversations with you so much. (laughs) You've always got really good perspective and a lot of knowledge on these kinds of topics. And it's so, I always find them so interesting. I think we've captured most of what I, I think would be germane for that conversation. Um, is there anything further you think that we should still touch on in terms of psychedelics or Buddhism? No, I think this has been, yeah, really helpful for me to go through with you. Um, there's this odd sensation that I'm experiencing as I relate to this process, um, where mm-hmm. I feel like I've had this discussion multiple times with people, um, in varying degrees and different ways. And I'm very familiar of the tra- trajectory and the path and this wonderful opportunity that, um, to present at this with this group and with this audience is it's interesting because it's in such a way that I won't have the advantage of conversing with someone like yourself uh, during the actual presentation. So yeah, I guess the work for me at this point is to really feel into and figure out how to relay the different ideas that are um, like you said, germane to this whole topic in a more presentation style. Um, yeah, I've been doing some work trying to study different presentations that I've enjoyed in the past. And yeah, I also know that I've been in many roles in which I've been, say, on a stage or in front of people and uh, speaking in a similar fashion. But for something, for some reason, this one, I don't know if it's because it's about a topic that feels so near and dear to my heart or about one that I think is so vital to people's well-being. And um, But there's something about it that the stakes feel different or yeah and i would just wonder if you have any um insights or advice about how to yeah deliver this in a way that is i want to avoid being 
presumptuous or pedantic or coming across as if I have solutions or the answer because I really don't believe I do. These are just teachings that I've discovered and that I've from other really qualified mentors and teachers and I've tried to remix them and put them into my own life and see where they have value and I'm just trying to relay that. Um, But yeah, I really don't want to come across as if like I'm a guru or something. Yeah, so I guess just the, the 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 first thought that comes to mind. So I I definitely understand that you know because this topic is so near and dear to your heart and seemingly so important, um, you might be putting more pressure onto yourself. But I I I would find it very hard to envision you ever kind of not um, you know really being able to, to to deliver on this. Like like I feel even you at your worst talking about this topic is still going to be informative um and and interesting to to most people so you know if, if that helps assuage your worries at all i i think that's one key piece to consider um i mean i could potentially just flag a couple a, a couple of the, the the points that you were making that again i i thought was most interesting so i guess i'd mentioned that already free piece right so the the, the differences between those two worldviews, I thought, thought that was um, really interesting and something really tangible that people can take away. Another piece that the, when you were referring to, uh, when you were visiting that relative who was in a critical condition and how in that moment you were able to you know, pull yourself out of that overarching narrative and just feel that moment and the, and the gratitude you were you were feeling in that like i i thought that that was very illustrative of of the notions you were trying to get across like i, I think it really helped exemplify it so um that's that's definitely a helpful uh tidbit to include um you know if you so choose <laughs> and let's see um yeah the distinction between bare attention and mindfulness i i think is helpful and and how you know how to map that on to psychedelic experiences and you know where people might often go wrong in terms of desiring the experience to be otherwise other than it is um is helpful so i yeah i guess those are the main things that that really stick out to me and you know i mean given it's probably, you know, a 25, 30 minute talk with some follow up Q and A after I, I think kind of limiting to, to, to those kinds of topics or, you know, whichever topics you choose to is probably the most, most fruitful approach. And, you know, then developing on any of them in the Q and A that event that, 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 uh, you know, the different questions that will come up after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the one of the struggles that I'm well, thanks thanks for all that feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I'm uncertain of how to get around is that uh, I think that bare attention mindfulness, good the notion of uh, good or bad sensations, and then also um, there's another teaching that we didn't get into here. That's uh, what the Buddha says about. Um, the common responses to different sensations. Um, 
and how there is two common paths and where Buddhism represents a third path. Um, those for me are the most immediately impactful for the psychedelic, um, field. Uh, and I mean, even this conversation has been going on for more than 40 minutes, which exceeds the length of this presentation. Um, and we didn't even get into the third path, Mm -hmm. uh, point. So yeah, I wonder to what extent, um, or like which of these points can exist, uh, independently and Hmm. relay sort of maybe the first pieces of this argument enough that people can at their own levels of interest or whatever, follow up. Yeah. I mean, so I feel the the thing you're referring to in terms of the good and the bad, that seems like the, you know, the other side of the coin, um, in terms of the, 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 the bare attention or the, the mindfulness that was seen almost inextricably tied. Can you briefly lay out what, what that Mm -hmm. third path is? Yeah. So for me, the third path is, I don't know a third side coin would be, but it's the third (laughs) side of the coin. Uh, so the Buddha talks about, um, how in relating to different sensations or events, um, there are two common paths or responses that we may find. The first is one of denial or fleeing from or fighting or, um, being afraid so we might feel angry and we might want to be like oh no like or we might feel scared and you're like ah run away or this shouldn't exist i shouldn't be angry i don't it's not appropriate for me to be upset uh i just want to love everybody all the time and the buddha would just point out that there is a desire inherent in that relationship where you're trying to make your present state different than how it is you're resisting or running away from it as opposed to allowing it to be. So in the setting of say meditation, you may, f- uh, I think a lot of people enter meditation. They're like, Oh, it's going to be so relaxing. You're going to sit and like Nirvana. Um, but what they may find is that there's a lot of irritation or a lot of self doubt or a lot of anger that arises. And what the Buddha would say is that if you can notice yourself wanting to flee or fight or deny, um, just be aware of that. And what is it like to notice that relationship? What is it like to notice? Oh, I really don't like this. I really don't want it to be. (laughs) And on the other end of the spectrum is, um, the second most common response of people is in the face of a sensation to allow it to take over, to surrender to it, to find themselves swept up in this, um, sensation or excitement that is somehow apart from them or different from them. And to give up their volition or sense of self or sense of um, agency to this external force. So one example of this may be eating uh, food that one finds particularly tasty and being like, oh my God, it's the tastiest thing ever. And because it's so tasty, losing awareness of actually what sensations you're experiencing, you kind of just melt into a puddle of bliss. And I think if we really pay attention there, we can find that we're actually not noticing what that delicious piece of cake tastes like we're just like swept up or uh, yeah like floating on this river without awareness um other examples might be say if you're really angry you might lose yourself in the anger and just uh basically disappear and not um be paying attention to what's going on uh instead of noticing what is it like to be angry what does it feel like right now it may feel like such a big or 
uh, powerful force that um, the only thing you can do is surrender and uh, let it take over. So the Buddha suggested that those are the default modes of responding to most sensations. Um, and the desire often takes one of those two forms. And there is, however, a third path, a middle path. And that path is simply to notice what is and to participate in it as it is. So in if we're eating something delicious, really attempting to be like, what is it like to be eating something delicious? Or if we're feeling really insecure or stressed out, what is it like to be stressed out? Not that it needs to change or be different and simply to be with it in that sort of like balance point, not tipping to either side. And so, yeah, to cap this all off for um, introduction to Buddhism, for especially how it applies to psychedelics, noticing things like setting up your radar and developing and increasing the acuity of detecting small protuberances and being able to see what affects your being. And then two, really noticing what those effects are and what your relationship to those events are or are like. So that's bear attention and mindfulness followed by the, I think steroids or the like blessing or the openness that comes from realizing that there is no such thing as good or bad events Mm -hmm. and that you simply can observe things with openness, curiosity and inherently none of those sensations are going to hurt you. Um, And so even scary or seemingly blissful states can be examined with honesty um, to better understand and orient towards or away from. And then third, um, yeah, just this idea that um, there are very common ways of avoiding or being swept up in that occur time and time again and that uh, perhaps a more useful way, at least according to the Buddha, is to continually attempt to bring yourself more into a place of gentle acceptance. Hmm. Yeah, so... It, it, it seems like all three of those would probably be good to... To, to touch on then definitely I wouldn't want you to leave out that, yeah. that third piece. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, just what's coming to me now in terms of framing this is, and, you know, feel absolutely no need to go with how I would, I would potentially organize it, but just kind of your introduction to psychedelics and, you know, kind of outlining what you had said before in terms of, you know, Sam Harris's experience and, and, um, you, you know, so that, that line of argumentation there, or that, you know, that line of thought outlining these three, you know, precepts or tenets of, 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 of Buddhism and, you know, drawing the parallels in terms of how it can apply to psychedelics or how it can apply to the orientation people take to psychedelics or those experiences. And then, maybe touching on just that that last piece in terms of uh, you know the the already free stuff the um the 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 developmental versus the fruitional worldviews and and how um 
people get caught in their identities, people get stuck in their narratives and, and they're not able to, to, you know, consciously actively participate fully, fully in the moment. Um, something like that, some organization like that is coming to me right now. Um, of mm-hmm. course, you know, go, go, go with it as you, as you feel, but. Yeah, I guess the trick will be, um, seeing in which way I can do that where it's, uh, not skimming over different parts or like blasting through them, but is able to, uh, offer them in a way where they are atomic enough that they can be understood individually and then also build off of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. This has been really helpful to, to do it in a very similar way, I think to how <laughs> I will be doing it. Um, this is my first time doing it on staring into a computer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it definitely gives me a pretty encapsulated idea of what sort of what I can communicate. And yeah, I mean, I think it's always important to keep in mind with these that you're just providing an overview. You know, it's not the kind of PhD thesis of, of these ideas, um, mm-hmm. you know, that they can, they can double click, ask questions to, to, to follow up, um, but mm-hmm. but e- even just a high level overview is probably going to be pretty helpful f- for a lot of people, especially those who are more naive to a lot of these notions. Because mm-hmm. because yeah. I remember, I mean, oh, sorry, uh, just the that initial conversation that we had, um, you know, over dinner a few months ago, um, where you were talking about the you know the, the the notions of the fruitional view and how how you would look at trauma. I mean, that was you know a th- two, three minute point you made. And that got me thinking for, for quite some time and, you know, led me to reading about already free. And so just even that very brief idea, um, struck me as super helpful, struck me as super useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you say that something that's coming up for me and sort of that I can identify it as one of the things that may be contributing to the tension I'm feeling with this is, um, like I said, I've, I've had these conversations many times mm-hmm. before and I really genuinely, it's one of my favorite parts of, uh, connection with other people is being able to like share these, um, notions that I've encountered and that I find a tremendous amount of value in. And I really feel like it's part of my life calling to continue to explore them on my own, as well as engage in conversations and compare ideas with others. And with that comes a sense of urgency, a sense of um, like importance that I place on this idea mm-hmm. such that in conversations like you referred to at that dinner, I'm so excited when people want to talk about these things and talk about things that I deem meaningful and like important for a living a life of fulfillment and purpose. And I'm also aware that I crave, I desire a lot more of that kind of interaction, a lot more of that kind of interest in really examining what it is to be human and these beings with histories and living in a moment where we have such ability to affect each other and ourselves. And I guess that in a concentrated form, such as a presentation that I really, if I feel into it, I'm really like, gripping tight on this idea like this can be an opportunity to to do that better to get more of that um and kind of creating this 
this narrative, this future self that's like, oh, it's going to go so good that like, and I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't even have a lot of awareness there. So I don't know what happens or like what the stakes are. But um, when I feel into the present moment, me, I'm like, oh, like, I just really want to do this more. And so to that end, I'm really grateful for this opportunity and that even just talking to you right now, like this is such high value time for me and uh, to connect with such a bright mind and to share ideas is such a treat. And yeah, I'm super, super excited and nervous and um, ready to, <laughs> to to do this in a different setting and hopefully, um, yeah, get like you said, give some high level overviews to folks who may or may not be interested in further developing the conversation. Thank you for your honesty there. Like it's always, it's always good to get a sense of how other people are approaching these same kinds of things. Um, I mean, I definitely, you know, will feel that in my, 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 my own experience, even when I'm thinking about, you know, recording this potentially as a podcast, um, you know, I feel the same kind of nerves or the same kind of excitement. Um, and, and then, yeah, I mean, just again, especially as you're mentioning, if, if this is something that's has been so important for you, I can only imagine, you know, a little bit more of the pressure that that ultimately entails. Um, and yeah, so uh, again, I guess the only thing that I'd, I'd, I'd reiterate is, you know, even if not everyone benefits overwhelmingly from these ideas it's it's, in my mind it's an impossibility that you know the majority won't take something tangible away just you know from having the this landscape laid out and knowing that these ideas are there even if they end up looking into them on their own um yeah i I, i'm I'm honestly looking like this this is why i suggested to my brother that you know we have you as a speaker just because if if with any fidelity you can convey the same kinds of conversations that we've had and, and package that up in the presentation form, uh, I think everyone's going to be much better off after that, uh, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. Well, yeah, let's hope it's so. Yeah. It's, I, I just want to quickly relate. It's so odd for me. Um, Steven Pinker, uh, the Canadian psychologist, um, talks about this, the difficulty of teaching uh, I forget he has a name for it, but it's essentially like how difficult it is to be a teacher because you forget that which you know that the student doesn't know. Like you're so familiar with your own knowledge that um, in some ways it's hard to anticipate uh, what you should offer. And so it's so funny to hear you like talking with such enthusiasm. It's so funny for me because I'm like, ah, these ideas really that special? Like... <laughs> They're things that I've been um, living and practicing and talking about for a number of years. So, um, yeah, it's uh, really refreshing and really invigorating to to hear that you see um, value in them because it helps orient me towards like, yeah, maybe those deeper, less shiny, less um, novel senses of, of appreciation and wonder that I have inside. And when I search, I think they are really there. It's just they've become so familiar that... Uh, it's easy to take them for granted or to be like, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. That's old, old news. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it's really, I'm just noticing it's, it feels like currently that there's a huge value in, um, communicating ideas to, uh, new audiences, new friends and, 
uh, yeah, continuing to teach and discover and learn through dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I guess in this case, monologue or, you know, what's coming up. Yeah. I mean, I expect people to throw digital peanuts at me from yeah. the chat room. So <laughs> cool, man. Well, this is feeling like a, a healthy pl- place to end this conversation. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? Yeah, no, I, I feel, feel similarly. I'm getting ready for dinner, but, but um, yeah, this has been a cool experience and I'm looking forward to it. I'm I really, I'm looking forward to it. And in a couple of weeks, not, not to put any more pressure on you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited too. And that excitement can ex- coexist. Um, like when I do a somatic scan, that excitement is healthily, uh, existing beside anxiety or tension or uncertainty. And you know, what? it's really okay that those two things are both there. I think that is what's true and I don't need to change it. I'm confident that I can, um, yeah, continue to just be this way without falling into uh, harm. Um, maybe just that wrap up, we can uh, finish in kind of the inverse way of how we opened with um, something we're grateful for and then also something that we learned. I'm really grateful for, um, yeah, what I was just saying about the through dialogue with you, learning so much about uh, the things that I'm uh, more familiar with or have like gotten used to and being invited to attend to um, those deeper sensations with a renewed curiosity. I think that's another way of practicing mindfulness. And it's not one that um, I think I'm always aware of this idea that like, oh yeah, you can be revisiting things that you already know and still finding lots to learn and appreciate about them. And I'm feeling gratitude or, or appreciation even just for for this experience i mean you know like i mentioned we've had conversations on this kind of thing but with the potential that this has turned into a, a, a podcast there's kind of been some cognitive overlay in in how that's appreciably altered my experience and so it's just you know there's there's, there's more novelty to the you know, this, this, this last hour of our conversation. Um, so that's, it's just been a cool experience. Right on. I learned today also, um, yeah, more clear, uh, framework by which to explain the different ideas that are relevant here. And, um, yeah, it's been helpful to write them down and to, uh, get them in bullet points so that I can have like these cards or points to go to in a way that feels really uh, fluid. I mean, I'm not sure this is a learning, but I think the best example that's sticking out to me in my mind is again, that story you were recounting about being on the airplane. Like that's, it seems like such a, a good example for, kind of truly being present in the moment. And so I th- I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm trying to explain that idea and what, what the actual implications of that can be, that's, you know, a card I can have in my back pocket, just, you know, referring to, referring to that kind of story. Cause I think that really, that really does exemplify it. Hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for this conversation, Andras. Yeah, cool. Likewise. Thank you. Catch you later. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. If you want to keep the conversation going, feel free to reach me at my email. It's hi at blakerupert.com. Once again, that is hi at blakerupert.com. And until the next time, may truth and knowledge continue to prosper.